Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Well, good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, I'll be in the second chapter today. I miss you guys terribly. Um, it's a really empty room in here. Um, I'm already looking forward to the day when we can see each other again. Um, looking forward to that very much. I mean, like, at this point, we're looking forward to it so much, like, it's going to be magical. Like, I, like I, I can see it now. I mean, we're going we're gonna to see each other face to face, and we're going to, like, talk and be laughing and high-fiving and hugging, and people are going to be giving each other friendship rings and bracelets and signing yearbooks. I mean, it's going to be awesome. So we're really looking forward to that day when we finally get back together again. Uh, but until then, the longing honestly does continue, and we look forward to the day where we will join again. Uh, there's truly in my own heart uh, you know, some purification that's going on as I walk through this uh, with God and with family and as we consider all these things. Uh, it's been quite a time for me, even personally. I hope that you have walked with Christ this week. And I don't just mean I hope you've had a great week. I, I, I hope so. That, that's nice. But more importantly, I hope that you've walked with Christ this week. And by that, I don't mean that you did perfectly, that you didn't sin at all. I, I, I know that we are all going to sin. But I mean that you walked with him and understood the beauty of repentance and faith, trusting him, finding true joy in, in him alone and satisfaction, understanding that you are forgiven of your sin and know that you are found complete in Christ. So I hope that you have walked with him, and I will be praying that you will walk with him this week as you go forward. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7. Man, I have been waiting to preach this section since last Friday. That's the, that's the day I decided to break up verse 1 through 7 into 1 through 3, and then 4 through 7. So I, it was then when I was, I was getting ready to do this, and I've been waiting since then to talk about it. So if you love Christ, let's start out with some good news this morning. If you love Christ, all of last week's terrible realities have become a thing of the past. No longer are you dead in your trespasses and sin. No longer are you a slave to the age of this world or to Satan or to your own flesh. You have been freed from all of these and no longer are you condemned to suffer under the eternal wrath of God. Last week we preached on the reality of our hopelessness, our hopeless state before God. But this week, we turned to the good news, to the gospel. Last week, we followed Paul through the wreckage of our sin. We preached the consequences of breaking God's law. But this week, we preached the glories of the one who obeyed the law perfectly and thereby rescued us. And more than that, he gave us every eternal spiritual blessing. Today we'll be in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, but I'm going to go ahead and start us off by reading 1 through 7. We'll start us off and then we'll pray. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the God of the universe and the rescuer of our wicked souls. Would you help us to see you clearly today in all of your glory and beauty? And would you grow us to be worshipers? Would we be exalters, both in our words and also in our actions, but most importantly, truly in our hearts? Make it real, God. Make it real, please. Thank you for your incredible work of salvation in your people. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There are clubs and work zones and specific places that you and I do not have access to. It's almost impossible for us to get into certain places just because we don't have the clearance or access or we don't meet the criteria to get into some of these places. I mean, there are some pretty high-profile golf courses that I have no business being on. Uh, if I try to get on, they would quickly escort me out of that place. I mean, there are military bases and sensitive areas that I just don't have clearance for. I don't have access to get through. I don't have any right to be there. Uh, I, you know, I'm not military personnel. Uh, I'm not working specifically to do something for them. I have no right to be in these places. If I want to go on to, let's say, Dam Neck Base and I want to go surf um, you know, and, and let them in, if I go up to the gate, ask them if, they, if I can get in to go to the beach and surf, what are they going to do but probably laugh at me, turn me away and say, hey, take, take a, hit, a hike and you can go surf somewhere else. You're not getting on this base. But I will have you know that I have surfed at Damn Neck Base before, but it hasn't been alone. Now that last part is the key to making this happen. I wasn't alone at the gate trying to get in. I was together with someone. In particular, in this case, David Doucette and I rolled up to the gate with our surfboards in tow, and they looked at me, and I said, hey, I'm with him. They looked at him and his badge and all that stuff and said, okay, you're clear, and then welcomed us onto the base. I don't qualify as military personnel, I don't qualify as a contractor or someone who has any business or right to be on the damn neck base doing anything, let alone surfing the beaches. I didn't have this right at all. But as the laws being as they are, I was allowed to enter the base based on who I was with, based on another person's qualifi qualifications, on their identification, on their status and what they had done. Now, we all understand this idea. I mean, we, we couldn't just waltz into the Oval Office uh, down in Washington, D.C. by ourselves. We'd probably quickly be escorted out by some men in uh, dark sunglasses into a totally different room. However, if the president followed protocol and 
came alongside and, and took us through the White House, we would pretty much have no problem getting into the Oval Office. Why? When people ask me, hey, what are you doing here? I would point right and say, hey, I'm with him. I'm with him. And at that point, if the things are being followed, I get in. I have access because of the fact that I'm with him. The idea that we're talking about here is at the foundation of our rescue as Christians. The fact that I can rightly say I'm with him is the only reason that we can experience salvation at all. That we can experience life, as Paul's going to talk about. Without being together with him, I'm dead. I'm enslaved. I am condemned to suffer the wrath of God for eternity. Last week, we talked about three major problems for every person in the history of the world. The first problem is that we're all dead, separated from God by our sins and transgressions. The second was that we were enslaved to the world, to Satan, and to our own flesh. And the third one was that we were condemned. We were all natural-born humans, and all natural-born humans are children of God's wrath. When we read these verses, verses 1 through 3, we're given a complete description of a hopeless humanity, dangling on the edge of destruction, completely ready for what they deserve. When we read these, in fact, if I can, I didn't talk about this last week for clarity's sake, but the ESV actually kind of smooths the verbs out here uh, to make it a complete sentence. You were dead. That's actually a complete sentence. Makes it much simpler to talk about. And they haven't messed up the theology here. They're still right. The truth is still the same. We were actually dead. That's still true. But by the end of verse 3, what should happen is that we should feel like we're on a cliffhanger. Paul actually leaves us with an incomplete sentence in verses 1 through 3. Because the initial verb is not a regular indicative. It's actually a participle. Now, for all those grammar nerds out there, you realize, and you're not surprised to find out, that the rest of verses 1, 2, and 3, then, are actually a description of you, talking about you. Uh, the reason I bring this up, you know, this thought process here, it hasn't been completed, and that by the end of verse 3, we get the feeling that he hasn't finished with us. It's important for us to feel the weight of walking through this text so that we get to proper the proper understanding once we get to verse 4. We are left in suspense here. It's kind of like he's saying something like this. I'm gonna, it's going to be the exact same words, but again, it's going to be an incomplete sentence. You'll notice it. You, being dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. No verb. Like, you what, Paul? Finish the statement here. What are you trying to say about you, about us? At the end of verse 3, we're left in suspense. Like, all is lost. Like, there's no hope here. What, what are, what's going to happen to us? He doesn't give us that at all. It's almost like we're left to fill in the blank ourselves. It's almost like he's saying, you being dead, completely separated from and condemned by God, and we're saying, are hopeless. It's like you are hopeless. I know it's not what it says here, but it's exactly the feeling that we get by the end of this verse. You being dead are hopeless. But then we get to our text today. Verse 4, 
but God. Now we have a subject. Now, what I mean by like in a ver- like in a, in, a, in a sentence. Now we've got the real subject that's come out. It's almost like he picked up the subject you. He started us with that in verse 1. And then he set it back down eventually to talk about what God was going to do. Not what you and I were going to do, but what God was going to do. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans- in our tr- trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now we know what Paul is really talking about in these verses. Yes, it's true that we're dead. Yes, it's true that we were enslaved and condemned. But those things were just leading us to the point that Paul wanted to talk about the amazing grace of the God of the universe. Paul didn't write Ephesians 2 simply so that we could have some good proof texts about total depravity. Paul is writing to tell us what God was going to do about that depravity. God made us alive together with Christ. Now, as you can see, I'm already getting excited. I'm already preaching. I'm ready to go on this. Uh, But I don't want to get us too far ahead of the text. So um, we're going to talk about this life, this idea. But first, let's work through the text here and understand and notice a few things that Paul mentions to us. So let's go ahead and look at verse 4. He says, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even as we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 4 introduces the big turn, but God. At this point, all eyes are on God now, realizing that this is the subject that we're supposed to be looking at. What will he do? Paul begins with the subject, but he also begins with the object, right? The, The subject being God, the object being us or we. And then he goes on to talk about each of us. First, he talks about God. Paul says that this God is rich in mercy. This is not a new concept, but it is one that is so important for this discussion. We sang songs this morning and had some verses read that highlighted the steadfast love of God, the mercy of God, the kindness and grace of God. When you and I, when we wake up each day, though, and one day it rains, One day it's sunny, uh, one day it's cloudy. When you and I wake up, is it any different outside for us than our unbelieving neighbor down the road? No. We each experience the beautiful sun, the, the, the blue skies perhaps, the rain that waters the earth. We each understand that. Matthew 5, 45 reminds us of this. He says, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In Psalm 145.9, the psalmist says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. These are examples of his general mercy, or we call it common grace, to the whole world. But more specifically, we know that God abounds in mercy as we look at how he interacts with his people. In Exodus 34.6, Moses heard the Lord declare this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's talking about a God being rich in mercy. We hear echoes of this in Psalm 103, what we sang this morning. Psalm 103, 8, praises God for his mercy. He almost says the exact same phrase that he did back in Exodus. And then, this is a great one, in Jonah 4, 2, 
Jonah, as he realizes what's happening to the Ninevites, he complains to God about being a God of mercy. He basically says, I knew you are going to do this. You're a merciful God. You're going to relent. They repented of their sin, and you allowed them to live. I knew you were going to do this because you're a God of mercy. So we understand how he starts to interact in these ways. But I want to talk about one more thing. How about the cross? We talk about Jesus being our substitute on the cross. That's penal substitutionary atonement. And we talk about how God did this to satisfy his justice. And we praise the Lord for his justice and we're thankful and we rightly hail this truth. But sometimes I think we forget that he didn't have to. I think we forget that when we look at the cross, that Jesus did not have to do this as though he had no control whatsoever. We look at the cross, on the cross of Jesus, as something that happened, that God was a, you know, he was bound to do it. He kind of had to do it. His hands were tied. I mean, man was sinful, so he had to do something about it, so he had to send Jesus to the cross. And that's that's what he had to do. Remember, brothers and sisters, that God is completely free and that it was he alone who chose to send Christ to the cross. He chose for Christ to receive the wrath of God for you and for me. It was his divine and great treasury of mercy that he showed at the cross. So we're seeing here, this means that this God is a God of immense, or as he says here, a God who is rich in mercy. He moves on. Not only is he a God who is rich in mercy, but he's a God who has loved us. He says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, does that sound like anything that you've heard before? It's probably one of the most famous verses in the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved. In his great love, he didn't just sweep our sins underneath the rug. He didn't just put them away. He didn't just seem like everything would be better. No, in his great love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself in flesh. He sent him to die for us. I'll tell you this, because we can get really mixed up here for a minute. Ultimately, he did not do this out of some sappy, love-struck heart of necessity that he had to do it because he was so in love with who we were. No, he set his love upon us. Rather, it was a God-honoring, glory-portraying motivation for the world to see who he was. That was a type of love. It was one that helped him understand, helped the, everybody else in the world to understand how great God was when he set his love upon us. Now, more of that when we get to verse 7, because we're going to realize that it's not all because of us that he has done these things. But it doesn't take away from the fact that his love is real and deep and powerful. God is merciful, he acted in mercy. God is love, he has acted in love for his elect. What a wonderful truth. If we can just step aside for a moment and think about this. What a wonderful truth to know how this text has played out already. He knows who we are. 
He understands our transgressions and sin and rebellion against him, our calloused hearts that hate him, that don't want his authority. And yet, Romans 5, 8, in the midst of us being horrible sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us. What a wonderful truth. The ones who rejected him, that he loves them. Don't fool yourself. You're not worth it. That's not what's going on here. I'm not worth it. You aren't that great. Look back at the first three verses of chapter two if you've forgotten about this. You are loved because God, being rich in mercy, chose to love you. That's Deuteronomy 7 talk. We remember this. Hallelujah, my goodness, that God would do this, set his love upon us, ones who hated him. Praise God. But he moves on. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So he talked about God, right? The subject. Now he reminds us of us, the object of what's going to happen here. He says that we were dead in our trespasses. Now, we already talked about this, right? Like, man, Paul, like, can't you let it go, man? I mean, we know. We get it. Like, we're the worst. We totally get it. No, I don't think you do get it. No, you, you need to understand because this whole world's thinking that you're okay, that I'm okay, that we're all okay. We're not okay. He takes the moment again to tell us that we are dead in our trespasses. Our sins and trespasses and our calloused hearts of rebellion have landed us at ultimate odds with God of the universe. Paul is bringing to the front the main problem that we are dead, that we're separated from God, and that we could do absolutely nothing about it. But by this point, we've kind of already heard the beginning of verse 4. We're sitting on the edge of our seats. We already know that we're dead in our trespasses. We are already filled, though, with expectation and with hope that something awesome is about to take place. I mean, consider it. At the beginning of verse 4, he uses the big contrastive conjunction, but God. I mean, okay, something different is about to happen. Something different from what was going on before. Then he talks about God being rich in mercy. Oh, mercy, that's good. I mean, that means that he might be kind and spare us from something that we deserve. And then he says that God loved us. Whoa, that means that this is personal and that I know if he loves us, he's gonna do something good for us. But what will it be? So we're all waiting and waiting. What, what, go ahead, tell us, Paul. Here we are at the heart of our passage, the heart of all of one through 10. He says that he made us alive together with Christ. Now, we were just hoping for a lesser punishment, right? We were hoping that maybe he'd just work out some way that we could get to a neutral ground and not have to worry about the hellfire. We were just hoping that we would be, you know, receive some sort of grace that we could have an allowance to live in maybe some lower plane below God. But no, he says those who are dead have been made alive together with Christ. Last week we spent a lot of time talking about this idea of death or being dead, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In those first three verses, we worked through the fact that even though we were still living physically, Paul was calling us dead. We talked then about real, spiritual, ultimate death. We talked about the fact that Paul is showing us that because of our sin, 
we are separated from God, that he has hidden his face from us. This was the number one problem that actually explained the next two problems. I mean, separation from God meant that he was not our master, but rather that the world, Satan, and our flesh was our wicked, treacherous master. Our separation or death, our separation from God meant that we were his enemies and that he would act justly to crush sin and all his enemies in his righteous wrath. Paul made a very big deal about death and continues to do so here even in verse 5. And since that is true, since being dead is such an enormous problem for us, the fact that we are now hearing that God made us alive ought to make us sit up and make sure we heard him properly. Well, well, wait a second. You said we're dead. Now you're saying he's made us alive? We know what dead means, but now he's saying that we've been made alive. I mean, this is even a bigger deal. So we better understand what Paul is saying. If he's saying you were dead in these drastic ways, but he is saying now God has acted to make us alive. We really need to think about this. What does he mean? What does he mean when Paul uses the word alive? Now, as a Bible reader, when you're sitting here, we've got a few clues to help us out here, so let's think through this. There's three things I want us to think about here that help us understand what he means by alive. First of all, let's talk about the contrast in words that he's used. He called us dead. Now he calls us alive it is probably safe to assume that when he says that he's made us alive, that he's talking about very much the opposite of what he meant by dead. We don't know all the different things about that, but what we knew about dead and death, we're probably talking about something that's opposite of that. So when we talk about death from the perspective of Isaiah 59.2, when we understand that death means separation from God, a hiding of his face, it's right then for us to assume that alive means not separated from God. That alive means some sort of relationship with God, some sort of togetherness with God, even maybe a closeness with our Lord, this idea of being alive. Instead of the separation that leads to enslavement, to terrible masters, there's now a closeness between us and our loving, good master. Instead of a separation that leads to wrath, there's a relationship that leads to the outpouring of his joy and his blessing and his protection. So first, alive has to mean something opposite of dead. But second, second, he doesn't just use the word to make alive. He uses the word to make alive together. Now, in our English translation, we're seeing this as separate words, and I get that. But in Greek, that's all one verb, to make alive together. It's, it's, it's one big, ugly word, but it, 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 it's extremely important. For us, it may sound funny to talk about it that way, to make alive together. That's one verb. It's not like he's adding something on later on. He is doing this because he wants to communicate something extremely important. The word to make alive, uh, or you might see it in your Bible as to give life, is used many times throughout the New Testament. And it's, it's a wonderful word. If you look in John 5.21, you see the Father and the Son, Jesus, giving life or making alive. If you look one chapter later, John 6.63, we watch as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, also 
gives life. He makes alive. By the way, if you have any doubts whether or not God is pro-life or not, I'll just let you wrestle and just kind of read some of these texts. It'll help you. It is God who gives life, physical life, and of course, spiritual life. But here in Ephesians 2, Paul isn't talking about generic giving of life. He's given us a clue when he uses that big word to make alive together with. There's more to this word than just taking a dead person and making them a live person. This life is a life with someone, together with someone. And this isn't just any ordinary someone. Well, how do you know? We'll just keep reading. Verse 5 tells us that he made us alive together with Christ. He makes it abundantly clear, just in case it wasn't clear from the whole first chapter, guys, if we weren't, if we weren't all paying attention very well, that all our spiritual blessings were given to us in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. If we didn't pick that up, Paul says it again now even more clearly. We were made alive together with Christ. It's life with Jesus Christ, life with the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. It's life that is completely dependent on the one who has died, who was raised, and who was seated by the Father at his right hand. Now, I, I just, uh, if I can just communicate, even by stuttering to you, uh, hold on a second. I don't think that we get how important this is. I don't know that it makes much sense to us or if it makes much of a difference to us. I mean, because frankly, you and I can't see Jesus. We can't feel Jesus. I mean, and honestly, it's hard to conceive of being connected in any real way with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And so when we think about our relationship with Jesus, we kind of think of it as some kind of wonderful, holy, generous earthly relationship. We think of it as like where someone has acted in true love and sacrifice, and we are the benefactors of that love. And that's wonderful, but it's not quite right. And we almost think of it like some eternal, all-powerful, rich, dictator, ruler, king who's wonderful, made the ultimate sacrifice and took our place, our punishment, our hit. And as an exchange, he gave us a blank check for the life to come and hope that we won't land in hell, but rather in heaven. And yeah, that, that's okay. That, that's kind of close, but it's not right. Not at all compared to what Paul is telling us here. Paul doesn't tell us that God has simply made us alive. Jesus didn't do something so that God could, in return, make us alive. He tells us that we have been made alive together with Christ. This means that we are connected so closely with Jesus that our new life depends on it. Not just on the transaction, but being connected to and with him alone. Remember what we're trying to do here right, in, this, in this little section. We're trying to figure out what Paul means when he says God made us alive. He's saying that this life is bound up completely in Jesus Christ, not just as a result, like what, what he did for us, but actually us being connected with him to the point that if we were separated from Christ, all would be lost. Like, without us being connected to him, without us being in him, 
we would still be separated from God. That's so deadly serious. There is no life without being connected to Jesus Christ. And this idea is wonderful and marvelous, and the truth is it's mysterious. We are talking about union with Christ. But there, I said there's a third clue here that helps us understand this alive idea. Let me, let me go a little further. We have to jump over Paul's exclamation for a moment to see it. Don't worry, we'll be back there in a moment. Third thing, not only are we made alive together, but we are also raised together and seated together with Christ. Look at verse 6. Let me read it. I'm going to start in verse 4 and skip to verse 6 a little bit. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, I do wish they would have shown the parallel a little bit better here in the ESV, but hopefully we can still get it. I wish they had thrown in together. That's the right way to translate this. But hopefully we can still get this. Paul is doing this. He's using two incredible words that he has already used back in chapter 1, verse 20. Now, I hope you have your Bible there because I'd like you to look at this. Now, you can listen. It's fine. But I think that you're going to see this pretty clearly when you see it in the text. He says in Ephesians 1.20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Go ahead down. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the same phenomena we just saw when he used that word made alive together with. Same thing is happening here. The Greek words that are found in Ephesians 1.20 to describe Christ being raised and seated are now changed ever so slightly. They're not the same word. Ever so slightly they've been changed, but ever so importantly they've been changed. They are not the exact same word. Same root word, but he's added something on purpose. You and I were not just raised. We were not just seated. No, we were raised together with him. We were seated together with him. This is an enormous difference. You see, you and I have no right to be raised. We have no right to be seated in the heavenly places. I mean, you and I deserve death, enslavement, and the wrath of God. We already saw it in one through three. The only way that you could ever be raised and seated is if we had someone, someone to point to and said to, our t to, to God, I'm with him. If we can do that, that's the only way we're going to make it in. We have no right to even the outer courtyard. I don't know if there's actually one. Like the outer courtyard or the perimeter of heaven. We have no right to it whatsoever. I mean, I don't even know if, you know, if a human can see this, but we have no right to it. I don't know what's going on, but I can tell you this. We have no right to waltz right through the pearly gates and claim citizenship on our own. I need someone who has all the credentials, who has met all the criteria, Someone who has kept the law perfectly, but also someone who has taken my sin upon himself and received the penalty of that sin, the wrath of God. I need someone who has earned the authority to bring me with him into the presence of God. In short, 
I don't just need Christ to go to the cross for me and then tell his father, yeah, you can let that one in over there. Chris, you can let that one in. That's fine. No, I need to be in Christ. You see, we were dead, separated from God for eternity. Our old man hated God. It sinned endlessly against him. It loved the world's advice and Satan's cheap thrills. And it loved to indulge the slave master of the flesh. That man, that man was headed for eternal death, for eternal separation from God. And make no mistake, all will die. All will die. But my question is, who are you going to die with? Same thing. Track with me here. These are not ideas that I came up with myself. My question is, who are you going to die with? Are you going to be alone or are you going to die with someone? Are you going to die together with Christ? 2 Timothy 2.11. Are you going to die or going to be crucified together with Christ? Galatians 2.20. Or are you going to die alone in your sin with only your own merits to show to God for your salvation? You're hopeless. No way. There's no way you can make it. If you do this, you will be eternally lost and separated from God in hell. This passage tells us that something outrageous, scandalous has happened in Jesus Christ and us. What God has done through him, in him, with him, to us. We cannot be separated from Christ in any way or there is no salvation. Verse 6 makes it really clear that not only have we been made alive with Christ, but we have been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Wow. I mean, the work that God did in Christ, the, the great immeasurable power of God, if you remember back into chapter 1, that immeasurable power of God that raised Christ from the dead and seated us, seated him by the Father's right hand, has raised us with Christ, has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, you'll see the distinction. We are not sitting at the right hand of the Father, but we are with Christ in the heavenly places. We enjoy true fellowship and life with God because of the incredible union we have with the second person of the Trinity. So, to describe the word alive the way that Paul means it is pretty extensive. It's pretty comprehensive when he's talking about the opposite of death. It's the opposite of separation from God, closeness, communion, a genuine loving relationship between us and God. It's connected with Christ in his living. We are not just alive by ourselves, but it also means that we are uh, alive in him. But it also means that we have all the extreme benefits of, that we have in Christ in the heavenly places with the risen son, Jesus. Because of this, we are thoroughly and ultimately blessed in Christ. We understand that in Jesus Christ, we have everything. In short, Everything good that has ever happened to you, that will ever happen to you in eternity, everything good is connected to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Without Him, we could not have been chosen. We could not have been predestined. We could not have been adopted. We could not have been redeemed. We could not have been sealed. We could not have been inherited. We could not have been raised. We could not have been seated. We couldn't have had anything without Jesus Christ. It is all on 
Him. It is all on our connection with Christ. Our being joined to Jesus, our union with Christ is everything. Without it, we're dead, enslaved, and condemned to experience the wrath of God. You see, like we started out today, it's all about who you're with. We all are saying, I am with him. This is the crux of it all. If we can't point to Jesus Christ and say, I'm with him, we're separated from God for eternity. Some people get squeamish, right? If, if a person regularly talks about Jesus this, Jesus that, as though like this person worships, like, as though they're just worshiping another person, as if like if he was just another natural born human that might deserve you know, some respect and allegiance and thankfulness, but certainly not like adoration and holy love. I mean, you just gush about this person, Jesus. But this is where we fail. If we get squeamish of a problem with this, when someone is rightly loving and adoring the second person of the Trinity, if we have a problem with this, we're in the, we're in the wrong. Those that properly see Christ as Messiah and all that he has done, 100% God, 100% man, the one who has joined himself to us, rebellious dead people, so that we might be made alive and experience every good gift from God, those that see Christ for all that he has done are overwhelmed and are prepared to live their entire lives in worship and love for their self-sacrificing king. Paul doesn't stop here, though. He tells us why all this stuff has happened. And I told you it wasn't really all about us. After verse 5, he stops to say it. But then once you get to verse 7, he says it clear as crystal. Why did he do all this wonderful work? Because he is a God of grace. In other words, a giving, a blessing God. One that does not receive things and then decides if he's going to give back because of it. He is a God of grace, grace, and more grace. This God has saved us by his grace. It was a gift. It was of his mercy. We didn't pay for or earn one single millisecond of his time because of something good that we have done. He made us alive together with Christ so that he could show off his grace to the world. That's why he did it. Not because we were so great, but rather to show and display who he was to everyone else. Go ahead and look at verse 7. You'll see what I'm talking about. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He says... God did all this so that in every age to come, in all the futures that there ever could be, in the coming ages, God would show forth or demonstrate or display or draw attention to his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to get into this idea even further the next time we meet together to talk about verses 8 through 10, I mean, these are the famous ones that we all love. It is not our works, not our boasting, not our merits, but it is by the grace of God, of God alone that we are saved. Hallelujah. 
I want to end today by asking you how you view your connection with Jesus Christ. This is an incredible passage. It's a statement of of great joy that we have made alive together with Christ. I spent a lot of time today trying to show you from the Scriptures that if you don't die with Christ, that if you don't live with Christ, that if you aren't raised with Christ, and if you aren't seated in the heavenly places with Christ, then you're dead. You're separated from God for eternity. You're separated from this God. We need to grasp the beauty and the immensity and the glory of the gift of our union with Christ. He isn't our boyfriend. He isn't cheap. Do you understand? He is our Savior and King. He is our lifeblood. If we are not connected to Him, we have nothing. We are separated from God. Without Him, we burn. Without Him, we're enslaved. With Him, we are forever with Christ. We are forever in His presence. We are close. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. So I want, you to ask, I want you to think about this. How do you treat Jesus? Do you treat him kind of like, you know, like a country, country music song talks about Jesus, take the wheel, or like you talk about him in a certain light way, but like you really believe that he's alive and he's there and doing something? Or do you understand that if he is the one that has done these things, and if we're connected with him in this way, this is the only way we have true life? How do you treat Jesus? Do you treat him as though these things are true? I, I, I just want to show you how glorious this Jesus truly is today. That's all I'm trying to do. I want us to see and to taste and see that the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, is good. I want you to love him. I, I, I want you to adore him. I want you to give your life in response to all that he has done to you in Christ. For the glory of God and for the display of his grace. What should be our response then? I mean, some of Jesus' words are pretty harsh, but I think it's right that we can only love and adore and obey Jesus Christ, hating our father and our mother and our friends and our spouse and our kids and our house and our job and our retirement accounts and our cars and our boats and our trinkets and everything compared to how we love Jesus Christ. Do you understand that this is the only right response to who he is? These are Jesus' words to us. Of course we're not to hate people as a sinful way. He's talking about the immense love that we ought to have for this one who has given us everything in himself. Nothing compares to the indescribable, immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ. May we then have our affections set ablaze for this Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for all of your grace that you have showered upon us. We know that we deserve your wrath, and it is right that we would be punished for our rebellion against you. For you are holy, you are righteous, and you are just. But Lord, today we see that you are loving and merciful and kind and gracious. We worship you for all that you are. Together we come to you asking that you would work grace in your people. Would you do the work that none of us could do, Father, in our hearts? Would you set our affections on the most beautiful Son? 
the one who has given us every spiritual blessing in himself. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.